I'm going to share a couple of thoughts with you from the Gospel of Matthew. And so if you want to get a Bible and open it up to Matthew chapter 20, we'll be looking at that in just a moment. Of course, the Christmas season is a season of stories. There's all kinds of stories that circulate around the Christmas event. And uh, there are other stories that help us to uh, illuminate and illustrate things that the Christmas event is also describing to us. And I want to begin with that today. Some of you will remember... Uh, the classic from the Grimm brothers, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. You remember that? And you'll recall that there was a king whose wife had died, and when he had remarried, he remarried a woman who was very beautiful, and she had a special magic mirror. You remember that mirror? And she could go to the mirror and consult it every day, and she could inquire what? Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? And, of course, every day the mirror was a good mirror and said, well, oh, queen, you are the fairest of them all. Until one day. And, of course, on that particular day when she consulted the mirror and said, who's the fairest of them all? The mirror replied, Snow White is now the fairest of them all. Well, this uh, was like lighting a fuse and, and blowing up somebody uh, who had counted on her beauty having this lasting effect. And uh, what we discover, and you know the rest of the story, she tells a hunter, I want you to go and take Snow White out into the forest. I want you to kill her. And uh, he takes her out in the forest and he just can't bring himself to kill her. So he tells her to run far, far away. And she runs out farther and farther into the forest until she comes upon this little cottage of the seven doors. Right. <laughs> We're not going to go there. Um, we're, we're sticking at the point of the mirror for just a moment. Because the old writers would often use a mirror or some kind of reflection, like looking into a pond or a pool, to uh, illustrate or to highlight things that are, are going on inside of us. And so when the queen consulted the mirror... Basically, what the reader or the, the hearer of the story is able to discern is this. That woman's got issues, right? She's got an issue with vanity for one thing. I got to know. I'm the most beautiful. I, I, I got to know. There's no one even a close second in beauty to me. So she's got the issue of vanity. and She's also got the issue of envy. For when uh, one does come up who is very beautiful, Snow White, it drives her crazy. And she's so over the top, she's like, I'm going to eliminate that competition. Hunter, go kill the girl. Well, now, uh, the fact of the matter is, there are not only these ancient storytellers along the years that have helped us to see things that are true about ourselves that need attention. But Jesus actually told stories that did the very same kind of thing. And the stories that Jesus told are most often referred to as Parables and parables are not uh, your typical kind of story. It is a different type of story. It's a story that that seeks to take a common scenario out of life and cast some heavenly light on that so that you learn and discern something that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise about God. And you learn and discern something that you wouldn't have gotten otherwise about yourself. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, there are a lot of parables, a lot of stories of Jesus that have been collected. And ten of those parables are specifically about the kingdom of God. 
the way Matthew describes it is the kingdom of heaven. And all ten of those parables have an introductory statement to go like this. The kingdom of heaven is like. And then he goes on to tell a story out of some basic common avenue of life. And he makes a profound heavenly point. This is how you know more about who God is and what God is like. And this is how you know more about yourself. Parables are like mirrors. When you look at a parable, you see something more and profound about God and about yourself. And so we're going to look at one of those today, taken from Matthew chapter 20, and uh, it's 16 verses. So we're going to read a little bit, and hopefully uh, you'll be able to follow along, because it's, it's a remarkable little story. It's a surprising story. So listen up, if you will. Verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. All right? He goes out to hire people to work in his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius, that's a sum of money for a day's work, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. Are you tracking along? So first off, he starts the day off, 6 a.m., and he gathers up some workers, goes down to Home Depot, catches a bunch of workers down there, and takes them out to his vineyard. And at 9 o'clock, he returns looking for more workers, more laborers. And he he doesn't even tell them what he's going to pay them. The first group, he said, I'm going to give you a denarius. I'll give you a full day's wage. The second group, he said, I'll give you whatever's fair. And so these guys go out there to work with him as well. Uh, So they go out, and again, uh, the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? And they said to him, because no one has hired us. And he said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So you follow along. He goes out at nine in the morning, gets more workers. He goes out at noon. He gets more workers. He goes out at three in the afternoon. He gets more workers. You think he'd be through. But no, he goes out at five o'clock in the afternoon, the 11th hour. Everybody's going to quit at six. And he finds these guys that still haven't been hired by anybody else. And he says, why aren't you working? Nobody's hired us yet. Well, then I'll hire you. Go work in my field. And so they do. Verse 8. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages. Bring everybody in and let's pay them all. And beginning with the last, which was customary, the very last guys to be hired got paid first. And then the guys that had been first to be hired were paid last. And when those hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received how much? A denarius. He gave a full day's wage to the guys that showed up at five o'clock. This is shocking. This is scandalous. Who would do such a thing? Verse 10. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. Because the guys at five got a full day's wage. The guys at three, the guys at noon, the guys at 9 a.m. Everybody got a full day's wage. And so those that had gone out at six in the morning 
thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius, just a full day's wage. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day with the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. What a strange story. What a peculiar story that Jesus told. And what's he up to? Well, one, he's going to show you something about God. But two, he's going to hold up the mirror so that you can see something about yourself. When the workers that had been hired first in the morning had been working since 6 a.m. until 6 p.m., were paid last and saw that they were paid the same as everybody else, and they grumbled, they complained, they called it unfair. I'm going to tell you, I'd have done the same thing, right? I mean, we grow up that way. We grow up looking at everybody's plate at the dinner table, and he better not have gotten more food than I got, right? Or he better not have gotten a bigger piece of dessert than I got. And when we have that kind of injustice go on in our lives, we have that common universal cry, that's not fair. That is deeply embedded in all of us. And so I'm with these guys that started working at six in the morning. And they're complaining and they're grumbling. And here's how the master replied to them. He said, first of all, hey, I feel I fulfilled my commitment to you. I said, would you work a full day for a denarius? And you said, yes, I gave you what I said I would give you. And secondly, it's my money. I can do what I want to with my money. Are you catching a little drift about God at this point? God makes certain commitments to us. And when we live a life that's in alignment with him and we follow him and we obey him, there are certain promises that will be fulfilled in us. Some may appear to have greater promises fulfilled than what we got. What's with that? And God says, by the way, blessings and promises are mine to give as I want to give. So would you begrudge me being generous to others? And that's why he asked in the third place, why are you envious? There's that mirror. See, here's who I am. I am this lavish, generous, over-the-top giving Kind of God. I want to bless people beyond their imagination, beyond their expectation. And sometimes that blessing will look like it has befallen more to someone over here than it does to someone over there. But I know what I'm doing. 
and it's mine to handle. Don't you worry about it. But if that's a problem to you, then why are you envious? Now, that word envious is a very fascinating word. As you may know, the New Testament, an ancient book written originally in Greek, has a number of Greek words that sometimes don't fully uh, uh, reveal the full nuance in English to us. So that word envy is the word for I, ophthalmos. So you've gone to an ophthalmologist, an eye doctor, and specifically it is an evil eye. That's what that reference is. That's how the ancients would refer to envy. They would call it the evil eye. In fact, some were so uptight about envy becoming a part of their lives, about them having an evil eye, they were uptight about it because there was a common myth that said, if I have envy, if I have an evil eye, anything that I look at, I'll ruin it. And so a lot of ancient people literally wore lucky charms around their necks so that they could ward off the evil eye. I mean, it was a really big deal to those guys. The evil eye of envy. There's an old Russian story that tells about God approaching a man one day. He says, I want to bless you. I want to give you something. But here's the catch. Whatever I give to you, I'm going to give twice as much to your neighbor. Okay? Just so that you know up front, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to give you something. But whatever I give to you, I'm going to give twice as much to your neighbor. What would you like? How would you answer that question? Some of you have heard the old story. For the guy thought about it, scratched his head for a moment, looked at God and said, "Uh, I would that you would gouge out one of my eyes. So that you would therefore gouge out two of my neighbors. And that's envy. I do not want somebody else to have what I have. I certainly don't want them to have more than I have. Envy is ugly. Envy is destructive. It destroys us. And it destroys people all around us. It destroys the capacity for joy. It destroys the capacity for celebration. For living full and meaningful life. And it's not only destructive, it's, it's highly, highly competitive. It's always looking at someone else uh, from the vantage point of what I have or don't have. Is he uh, more successful? Is she more attractive? Do they have more stuff? Hey, I want his house. Hey, I want her spouse. You know, it's all this competition kind of stuff where we're always measuring and evaluating. Where am I in this whole order of things? Is it fair? And of course, logically, we know the answer to that question. Life is not fair. Life is extremely unfair, right? But knowing that is not the same as being able to cope with that. So what we're actually looking at here with this parable, as God shows us more about himself over the top, generous kind of person and more about ourselves 
petty, selfish, self-centered, envious. In, the, in that whole context, he's saying, now here's what I want you to get. See, the kingdom of heaven will be filled with people who are radically different. The kingdom of heaven will be filled with people who have a large heart and who celebrate the blessings that I give to other people, the opportunities that I give to other people, the advances that other people are able to make. And as you look at that mirror, you're like, wow, am I the kind of person that would be at home in heaven? Do I have a large heart like that? Or is mine kind of small, as they say with the Grinch, two sizes too small and kind of envious and jealous? And here's where we come to the Christmas story. Because the good news of the Christmas story is that God chose to leave heaven, chose to leave all of glory, and to come into this world and into humanity and become one of us, become a flesh and blood human person, in order to pursue us. To come after us, to let us know how much he loves us, how much he wants relationship with us, how much we matter to him. And not only that, he came to live without sin so that he could sacrificially die an atoning death that would pay the price of our sin, allow us to have forgiveness and be reconciled to him. That's the good news of the Christmas story and the Easter story. I just threw both of them in there for the same price. The Christmas story is about his pursuing us. And the Easter story is about his purchasing our forgiveness with his own sacrifice. Now, it's, it's with that forgiveness that he then can not just move into this world like he did in the coming of Christ, but move into our heart. See, the Christmas story is God's story of wanting to move into our heart. Not just be some God out there somewhere, but personal and internal so that he can transform our heart so that it's a kingdom of heaven type heart. You know, you've heard all these stories about somebody who died and they go and they stand at the pearly gates and there they're talking with Peter about whether they're going to get in or or, or they're going to be left out or whatever. Those stories don't really get at the the prime key point of what God's up to. God's, God's up to a radical transformation inside to out of you and me. So that when life is over, we don't like walk through the gates of heaven for the first time. We've already been experiencing the kingdom of heaven here and now. Jesus said it's for here and now as well as there and later. And so as we get into this season of all the stories, has the prime story 
the central story become your story? Has Jesus come into your life? Has he begun that work of radical transformation, changing your heart? Maybe your deal isn't envy. Maybe your deal is pride. Maybe your deal is some kind of gluttony or greed. Maybe it's something around lust. Maybe it's one of the other big seven. Will you look into the mirror? The mirror of God's Word. The mirror of Jesus' story. Will you allow Him to show you how ready or not are you for the kingdom of heaven? Will you believe? Believe the Christmas story. It's not one of those Grimm brother stories. It's not one of those ancient fables. It's the truth that, Je- that Jesus came for you to show you that God loves you, to pursue you, to win your heart. Will you believe that? And will you give your life to Christ, allowing him to transform you so that you become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, starting now as well as forever? Let me pray for you about that. Father, thank you for the opportunity to reflect on a Jesus story. Would you, by your Spirit, bring the truth of that story home to our hearts? Help us to see ourselves, the frailty, the brokenness, where we miss the mark. Help us to see how big, how great and awesome you are. And the transforming work that you would do in us. And God, I pray for my friend today that would like to have that transformation take place. Lord, would you come near to them and touch their life today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Early on this morning, I made reference to a little card that was attached to your program. This is the time that we use that. This is not only a connection with one another in the house, but this is a way we connect with God. And so let me encourage you. If there has been something that you've heard in these moments that God has stirred you about, that you want to respond to Him about, why don't you jot that down and let us pray for you about that. It will be confidential to us, to our staff. Maybe you want to say, I confess, I looked in the mirror, I've got this stuff in my life, and I'm asking God to help me with it. Maybe you would want to say, uh, I do believe the Christmas story. I want Jesus to come into my life. Maybe you'd say, I, I need God's help in this whole transforming of my life. Just jot a little prayer there, and we will pray for you and with you about that. In a moment, our ushers are going to come and they're going to receive these little connection cards. If you're a, a part of the Meadowbrook family, it's also when you can worship God with your tithes and with your offerings. And uh, the Redmond Chorale is going to sing uh, while we're in this time of offering. Let me say a quick prayer. Father, thank you for all you give to us. Thank you for the opportunity we have now to give back to you. Amen. Amen.